Good evening. It's good to be back together this evening, and I appreciate very much each of you for making the effort that you've made to come and share our evening together. We're continuing our stu study in Ecclesiastes, and as Brother Matt said, tonight we'll complete our study of that book, but continue throughout the weekend to deal with some other uh, lessons that will tie back into some things that we've studied from Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> Recall that uh, Solomon's stated purpose in the book was to find out what a person should do in life. Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 12 is one of the passages where he talks about uh, that purpose and his quest. It said, Who knoweth what is good for men in this life? All the days of this vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Who knows what's the right thing to do, how to spend our lives? You know, the Bible teaches us in the book of Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23, it's not a man that walketh to direct his steps. The book of Proverbs says that man's goings are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? The nature of our journey is such that we're traveling a path that's been planned by God from time to eternity. And none of us have ever made that trip before. We don't know the way. And so Solomon understandably asked, who can tell what's good for a man to do? The answer is only God. And I believe that the Lord through His Spirit inspired Solomon to pen things in the book of Ecclesiastes to answer our question. What is the thing that we should do in this life? Solomon was a wise and wealthy king who gave in to a weakness. His weakness was women. We studied that when we studied uh, uh, the, the beginning of the meeting about the life of Solomon. And they, uh, many of the wives that he married carried his heart off after other gods. And in the midst of all that, Solomon conducted this experiment to try to appease the flesh and find fulfillment under the sun in this physical world. And it failed. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes discussing these failures in his life. As you read the book, it becomes clear that it's something that he wrote near the end of his life because he's looking back at things that it took him years to accomplish. He couldn't have written it at the beginning of his kingship because a lot of the works that he describes in Ecclesiastes, he didn't achieve until it was done. Last night, we looked at a passage in chapter 7 that seems to me to suggest read it marrying some of the bad women that he married. He talked about the fact that he couldn't find among them anyone that was valuable and godly and encouraging him to do the right thing, and he can he characterized himself as a sinner for making those foolish choices. So he discussed all these failures. Solomon's experiment showed the quest for fulfillment in the temporal realm was futile. You can try to do things to satisfy the flesh, but the flesh is an insatiable monster. It can't be fully appeased. And whatever joy you do find in this life is only going to last for the duration of your life. Then what do those do, things do for us once a person is gone? But the book of Ecclesiastes gives us godly wisdom and teaches us how to overcome these things, how to live life under the sun. I don't know if a battery on this thing is about dead or what. Let me spin them and see if that helps. He showed us we can have, uh, we can have value in these temporal things if we use them with wisdom. He showed us how to live life under the sun in a way that's meaningful and fulfilling. So what's Solomon's ultimate conclusion in the deal? Last night we talked a lot about wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes that guides us in our daily affairs. What is the punchline? What's the punchline? Well, I hope it's obvious to you. 
If you've read much in Ecclesiastes, you're bound to remember the statement at the end of the book. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. While these young folks have been working on learning to quote that passage this week, we've talked to them some about trying to not just quote it here from the front of your mind, but remember it, make it a part of the back of your mind and part of who you are. I hope we can all do that. And so tonight we're going to study Solomon's conclusion. What's the bottom line about how we should live our lives? We've studied some about temporal joys, that joys, that is joys that we have in this life. Solomon experimented with these things, construction projects, wisdom about how to grow orchards and raise animals and things like that. And he built all these elaborate systems to water all his different gardens and so forth like that. He built a great land army. He had a lot of power. He had a lot of wealth. He had entertainment at his fingertips, great singers and great uh, performers of great music. All these things that he dabbled in, and they didn't bring him a sense of fulfillment. But then we've studied about a proper way that a person can enjoy these things as a gift from God. So what is the sum total of what can be said about these temporal joys? Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19. Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him. For it is his portion... Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him the power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. We don't need to feel guilty about having physical things. We live in a physical world. We have no choice. We're here. What do we do with it? This passage teaches us we treat these things as a blessing from God and we enjoy them accordingly. We don't use them for selfish purposes and self-gratification and self-aggrandizement like Solomon did for that window of his experiment. Instead, we use them for the glory of God. We use them with an understanding that these things in this life are only temporary. They're blessings from God for us to enjoy, but we've got to live life with a higher sense of purpose than just getting more for here and for now. Ecclesiastes 7 and 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, surely has God, God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. In the day of prosperity be joyful, but remember, there's also hard times. Stop and think about our temporal joys. Think about some of the things that you might like to do for, just for fun or for entertainment. Well, if you're currently employed, if, you, if you're not retired yet, and I guess there's quite a few here that are still in the workforce, you probably look forward to getting to take vacation time from work if you get vacation time. If you don't, there's a good chance you wish you could. You know, a retired person kind of enjoys having a project to do. Ask some of them, they'll tell you. You don't look forward to a day off as much as if that's all you got. You stop and think about that. I've heard a lot of men talk about enjoying retirement, but you know, they run out of honeydew projects and things got a little dicey and the wife found them underfoot all the time. Something had to give. So they found meaningful projects and things to do, but then they got to work because they wanted to, not because they had to to earn a living. Then they could enjoy it. My point is this. If all you ever got was the fun stuff, the time off, pretty soon you'd get sick of time off. You'd be bored and want something to do. Well, think about that as it relates to life problems. We enjoy these good times. We enjoy these blessings. But if that's all we ever have is good times because we're bound in this flesh, pretty soon we're going to get spoiled and we won't enjoy it as much. 
Look, I love a good grilled steak. We've got some in our freezer. We bought some beef from a friend of ours, and the steaks on that thing are just succulent. They're wonderful. But if I had that three times a day, I wouldn't enjoy it as much as I do if I have it once every two or three weeks. Okay, right now I'm thinking I'd like to try. <laughs> but I know better, and you do too. What's your favorite thing? Maybe you like shrimp. Leland and I like to have shrimp when it's his birthday. We enjoy getting together and cooking that. I don't always get to join them, and I miss it when I don't get to do that. When we do, that's a lot of fun. I guess if we did that three times a day every day, if we didn't get sick of each other first, we'd get sick of shrimp. I don't know. Is that possible for us to get that tired of shrimp? You see what I'm getting at? The rough times in life help us appreciate the good times in life. And Ecclesiastes 7 and 14 teaches us that. These temporal joys, they've got a place. But we've got to understand there's got to be a sense of balance in our life. And when hard times come, accept that's also part of the picture. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18 reminds us of another important factor. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. In this context, it's one of those places where God warns Israel now, you go in the land, you build all these great places to live and enjoy the fruit of the land. Don't forget me, because he knows that we tend to get forgetful when we're prosperous and we might forget God, and, and that's the way humans, when I say we, I mean humans. So he warns Israel, don't forget me. And in the same context, he's saying, you need to remember who it is that gave you the power to get wealth. You see, the ability to prosper in the temporal realm and obtain things that we enjoy is a gift from God, isn't it? So as we enjoy these things, we've got to enjoy them with a sense of humility. I could not have this if God didn't give me the strength to obtain it. Forget that attitude of why should I thank God for it? I worked for it myself. Who do you think made you able to work? Who gave you a planet to work on? <laughs> Who made a climate on the planet that accommodated us working and growing things and building things and doing things? We can't do it without God. So whatever temporal joys that... Life brings our way. We've got to enjoy them as something that's a gift and a treasure from God. And that flavors how we use them. And so they begin to take on a specific purpose in our lives. In the midst of Solomon's experiment, his purpose in temporal joys was to make Solomon feel fulfilled. His purpose was self. And it didn't work. We talked about that a lot this week. If you've forgotten that or this is the first study in this series you're hearing, just go back and read Ecclesiastes 2.17. Therefore, I hated life. Using temporal joys for selfish purposes left him feeling empty and unfulfilled. They need to take on a different purpose, a better purpose, a higher purpose. We can use these temporal joys to teach by example an important principle of sowing and reaping. I want to ask you to think about that for just a little bit. Think now about sowing and reaping. In Ecclesiastes 11, the first six verses, <clears throat> Cast your bread upon the waters, <clears throat> for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the morrow, or excuse me, on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree fell, uh, falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. 
as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb or her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This passage teaches us some of the things that are elsewhere visited in the book of Ecclesiastes. The idea that things in life take their cycles. Remember that uh, very famous passage in Ecclesiastes 3, the opening uh, seven or eight verses there. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. And there's a time to plant and pluck up, and a time to uh, of war and a time of peace and a time to laugh and a time to mourn. And all these different things. Well, he talks to us about these different cycles and, and things coming and going in life. And so he says, while you've got a chance to do something for somebody, do it. Give a portion of, of for feeding your servants to seven or eight. You don't know tomorrow if you'll have a chance for that. If you've got an opportunity to sow, go out and sow. You may lose whatever you're trying to do. It's physically planting a crop or something else you're trying to do in life. It may fail, but try. And if you try and it fails, try something else. Try two or three different things. One of them or two of them or all of them might succeed. That's what he teaches us. So Ecclesiastes plants in our minds this idea that you reap what you sow. Well, we should go out and try to teach that to others. Why? Because in Galatians chapter 6, that lesson takes on critical spiritual dimensions. If you sow to the flesh, you'll love the flesh, leap, reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. That's a spiritual principle that you reap what you sow. And that's a spiritual principle that speaks to us about where we'll spend eternity. Not about life under the sun, but about where we're going to be when this life on earth is over. If we want to have blessings of a life with God in heaven, we've got to sow spiritual things instead of physical things, according to that passage. Well, how do we illustrate the idea of sowing and reaping? How did Jesus do it in the parable of the sower? <laughs> he talked about sowing and reaping in this life under the sun in the physical realm. And he used that to teach a spiritual lesson. And that's exactly what we can do with temporal joys in life. We can set an example before our neighbors, our friends, our family, our loved ones, others in the communities that witness our lives about the proper lesson of you reap what you sow. And use those occasions to illustrate and explain, if we have the relationship and the opportunities to do that, explain to people the spiritual principle that's underlying why it's true that you reap what you sow. Because that's true not just now, but in eternity. Now you see, if you go out there and you try to do something and it doesn't prosper, that doesn't mean you failed. You've got an opportunity to teach an important lesson. Teach that to your children. Teach that to your friends. Teach that to anybody you've got an opportunity to teach that to. But live life with that kind of purpose to illustrate the sowing and reaping. Ecclesiastes 7 and 8 says, Better is the end of the thing than the beginning thereof. And let the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. That person who patiently waits for the harvest, at the end of it, it's better than the beginning. See, when you get to the end and you reap the reward of what you've put out and what you've done, that's a better thing. And the person who's patient enjoys that. And that illustrates this idea of sowing and reaping. There's something else that happens with life under the sun. And that is it creates an opportunity for us to enjoy these things in a way that shows God's love. 
Think about that for a moment. Think about demonstrating God's love with the things that you enjoy in the physical realm. You say, David, that's not what they're for. Well, hang with me for a minute. Maybe you can see that there is a spiritual lesson here after all. Ecclesiastes 3, right on the heels of talking about all these different seasons there are in life, there's a time for this and a time for that. Right after all that, it says he's made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he's put eternity in their hearts. Man can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labors. It is the gift of God. Over and over this week, we've read passages in Ecclesiastes that says, enjoying these things is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. So do you think that we can have these temporal joys here and enjoy them in a way that shows that they're a gift from God and therefore God loves us? I mean, if He gives you a gift, that's a token of love, correct? If He gives you a gift of some temporal joy that's meaningful to you today in this momentary life, that is just a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away, how much more love is shown in His eternal gift of His Son's sacrifice for our sins. You think the gift that God gives us to sustain our lives here below is an opportunity to talk about the gifts that He offers to sustain us eternally? Well, of course it is. Now see this idea borne out that these temporal gifts are a token of God's love. Acts 14 and 17, the Apostle Paul here preaching to the pagans at Lystra said, Nevertheless, speaking of God, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. The ability to get by doing labor, remember that in Deuteronomy 8? It's God that gives you the power to get these things. That ability to sow and reap that we read about in Ecclesiastes, these things that are a gift from God, God has made that possible. He did good. And in doing that, what has He done for the human race? (laughs) He's filled our hearts with food and with gladness. He's made it possible for us to prosper so we can see that you see He loves us. He cares about us. He hasn't left Himself without witness. He's left abundant witness that God loves us, even that he loves his enemies. Luke 6 and 35, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. We should love our enemies. Why? Because God loves his enemies and we want to be like our father in heaven. What do you mean God loves his enemies? Well, he does good for others. He's kind to the unthankful. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about him sending rain on the just and on the unjust. It's the same thing that Paul preached to them at Lystra about. That God has done good things for people. Even people that don't love God, don't even acknowledge God, don't want any part of God. He's still made an earth where we can live and prosper and reap what we sow. And the Bible teaches us that is a token of God's love. So when we enjoy these temporal things that he's given us, let's remember there's a higher purpose with which we can enjoy them. And that higher purpose is to demonstrate how much God loves us by giving us so much. And what does the Bible teach about God's love for us? We love him because he first loved us. So what do we do with this? 
If you really want to make your neighbors believe that you think God loved you, then love Him back. You share the temporal blessings that you have. You honor God with the first fruits of your increase. You live life with a sense of God-directed purpose. And with the joy of your heart and that merry spirit that we've talked about some, show the world that you're joyful about it. That you have something to live for beyond this life that gives your life meaning and hope. It also gives us an opportunity to show priorities. Look, all this stuff in life, it's very easy for these things to become distracting. We can get easily distracted by the wealth, the projects, the entertainment, all those kind of things that Solomon experimented with. He got distracted with them. He's the wisest man that up till that time had ever lived. So why would I think I would be immune? Well, I don't. And I don't think you're immune either. All that glitters is not gold. And a lot of the things that glitter in life can distract us from what really matters most in life. But we can enjoy the, the blessings that God gives us under a sun in a way that shows people that we have priorities. It means God is first. Consider Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 6. Better is a handful with quietness, but both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Amidst other lessons that we could observe from this passage, I want to draw your attention to one lesson, and that is he needs to, he's teaching us we need to put a priority on how we hold it, not how much we're holding. Does that make sense? We need to put a priority in the way that we enjoy and use the things we have that shows we've got this quiet peace of mind in our relationship with God that transcends how much we've got. Look, Solomon had about all you could get in Ecclesiastes 2.17, but he had no peace of mind. Rather than having this handful with quietness, he had travail and vexation of spirit. Why? Because he was living for himself. When you turn that back around and make God a priority, then we find it possible to live a joyful life. So much so that in the New Testament, he commands us to be joyful people. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit to have joy in our hearts. So there is a hint at priorities here. Proverbs 15 and 16 goes along similar lines when he says, Better is little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Now I want to ask you to notice something here. On the one hand, you've got a troubled heart that's travailing in vexation of spirit. On the other hand, you have a heart that fears the Lord, that has quietness of spirit. By comparing these two passages, I gather that the quietness in Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 6 comes from a healthy fear of God. Therefore, I conclude that passage mingled with Proverbs 15 and verse 16 is teaching me a priority. What matters more than how much I'm holding is how I'm holding it, the manner in which I'm holding it. Am I holding it with a heart that fears and respects God and wants to submit to His will and makes that my priority in life? Because if I don't, I'm going to have travail and vexation of the Spirit. I'm going to have trouble with it just like Solomon did. In John 6 and verse 27, Jesus talked about the priorities in our life quest. He said, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meet which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the God the Father sealed.
What does he say is the overriding, prevailing goal and motive and driving force in our lives? What it should be is laboring for the meat that endures into everlasting life. He said this to a group that was following him around like a lost puppy because they wanted a free meal. Jesus had already fed them once. When you study John 6, I get the distinct impression he didn't feed them again. Oh, he fed them some words. <laughs> but he was done feeding them loaves and fishes. He wasn't going to become an enabler to their carnal mindset, was he? Instead, he was going to teach a valuable spiritual lesson. You guys need to learn to be interested in something higher to pursue in life. Don't follow Jesus because you want a free meal. Follow Jesus because you want what he eternally offers. Everlasting life. Meat that endures unto eternity. That teaches a priority and a higher calling. That I'm following the Lord and I'm submitting to the Lord. And I'm living my life by these wise principles in Ecclesiastes. Because I'm pursuing this relationship with the Lord. That gives me hope and meaning for the future. And that is my priority. Not how much of a buzz I can find today and if I can find a bigger, longer lasting buzz tomorrow, you see, like what Solomon was searching for. We need to fill our life with eternal pursuits, pursuits of things that matter the most. And we need to start early. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1, he said, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Over and over we've revisited the thought, you, young people, need a philosophy by which to live your lives. And that philosophy needs to be directed by God and not man. You need a rudder. You need a steering system to direct you. And here's your steering system. You start early, remembering your Creator. And you serve Him faithfully. You spend a lifetime avoiding God and setting up bad habits, you're going to have a hard time breaking. The evil days may come when you say, you know, I'm just not interested. Happens to a lot of people. Don't be one of them. Well, it's too late for me to start early. Well, it ain't too late for you to start now. Okay? Jesus told a parable of an 11th hour servant. That's somebody that waited till the bitter end. But they finally come to their senses and serve the Lord. Frankly, you may be at your 11th hour of life and not even know it. So wherever you're at in life, you need to start now if you haven't started already. Remembering your creator and serving God. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9 and 10, Solomon sounds a warning, especially to the young, when he says, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. In that first verse that we read there in verse 9, it's almost like he's taunting us. Go ahead and live the way you want to live. Go ahead and go out and have all that worldly fun and let that be what your life's all about. Go on ahead and do it. But just know that God will judge you for it. So the better answer is, the better idea is, you know what? I'm going to remove sorrow and I'm going to remove evil. And I'm going to realize that the young get old and the old are called before God to be judged for how they've lived. And so are the young. And so our only answer is to live our lives remembering our Creator 
and starting young as much as is possible for you. And if you waited too long, start now. Keep a perspective as you walk here below. Keep a perspective that remembers that life is brief and life is vain and could end at any moment. In Ecclesiastes 5, 11 through 16, when goods increased, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, save the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of laboring man is, sleep, is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept uh, for the owners thereof to their heart. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. He has come forth of his mother's womb, and naked shall he uh, return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, uh, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? What good will your labors do you in eternity? Your earthly labors here and the things that you physically collect, what good will that do you in eternity? You can't take it with you. You come into this world naked and you're leaving without anything. And so you've got to live your life with this perspective, realizing that these temporary labors have a purpose, but their purpose is limited. And you need to live your life with that perspective that stays focused on God and your duty to Him. Ecclesiastes 8 and 12 says, Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. We sing it sometimes in that song farther along. That's not everybody's favorite song. You think about the era in which it was written and the sorrows that might dominate a person's heart in a, in a low point in life, you can understand the message of that song. Part of that song says, then do we wonder why others prosper, living so wicked year after year. Farther along, we'll understand, you see, that's what the song teaches us. But it admits that there are points of life when we see the wicked prospering and we wonder, what's the use? And Solomon admits that here. But he adds this thought of faith. I may see a wicked person prospering year after year, but I know in the final analysis, it'll be well with the righteous. You've got to live your life with that sense of perspective, knowing that whatever prosperity a sinful uh, mindset might find in this life, whatever joy they might find will only last for the duration of this life, and it won't be fulfilling at that. But serving God faithfully fulfills not only now, but in all of eternity. That's where it ends well for the righteous. Life lived serving God is a life worth living, fearing God, you see. Because there is that approaching end. Think about the way he explained it in Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 8. If a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. Remember the days of darkness. Remember that hard times are apt to come in life. And also remember that the end will come in life. And as you consider that, Remembering the days of darkness, remember the brevity of life. Psalms 90 and verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. If by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength, labor, and, uh, and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. 
life will come to an abrupt and sudden end. And we've got to be prepared for that. There is an approaching end. Psalms 39 and 5. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine ages as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Does that sound anything like Ecclesiastes? Sounds just like Ecclesiastes. He's warning us, you're not going to live here forever. I think it was appropriately said one time, somebody commented to me, nobody thinks they're going to live forever. They just don't think they're going to die today. You stop and think about that. This may be your last day. Oh, well, not today, surely. It's coming sometime. It's going to be someday. How about live every day in a way that keeps you fully prepared? Walk your days in fear of God. Because there is this approaching end. We come to this portion of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12 where there's a very beautifully poetic description of an ugly reality of life, and that is the reality of death. Consider it. Ecclesiastes 12, remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near, when you say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain, In the day when the keepers of the house trembled and the strong men bowed down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and terrors in the way, when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails, where man goes... To his eternal home. And the mourners go about in the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loose. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Solomon depicts life. It sounds to me like he's picturing life. Like a, a, a processional march right down the street of a town. You start out, the lights are bright, and, and you hear and you see. And, but then as you go along, the sound of the grinding becomes low. And the eyes grow dim. They don't see clearly out the window anymore, you see. And you keep marching ever onward, but toward your certain end. And what happens? You wake up the sound of a bird. When you're 18, you sleep sound. If they let you, you can sleep till noon. When you're 48, you can't do that anymore. It doesn't take much at all to wake you up. Somebody here tonight that's 68 or 78 will tell you it doesn't get any better. What else happens? Solomon said the desire fades. Your thirst for life and your, your, your desire to go and get more and do more, that fades. That sense of ambition begins to die right along with the body. What else happens? The daughters of music that Solomon enjoyed hearing so much, he can't hear them so well now because he's getting older and his hearing is fading. And somebody becomes weak. Even a grasshopper becomes a burden as those muscles that used to be so big and so strong are now withering away and there's nothing he can do to stop the relentless march of time until eventually the body just falls apart. The golden bowl is broken and the cord is loosed and all these things. You, you just fall apart. He just pictures you, pictures you getting down here to the end of the way and all of a sudden everything just starts falling apart. You go to your long home. Where's that home going to be? 
Solomon teaches if you want it to be heaven, you need to remember your creator in the days of your youth. Live that life that's worth living. And as we read on, pressing to the end of the chapter, Solomon comes to his conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You may waste your life doing things that are wrong in the sight of God and trying in earnest to hide it from your fellow man. But all the while, God has been watching and taking record. Some of us have visited some this week about our cell phones and all the new technology that we're enjoying, and we've kind of joked about the fact that, you know, Google knows where I'm at right now. They do. We was looking at the traffic data as we was navigating. I was talking to Dusty about some of that. How do they know what this traffic is? They're getting it off our phones. How fast it's going. They know where you're at and how fast you're getting there. They know. They're not the all-seeing eye. They don't know everything. But I'll tell you who knows what they're doing and why they're doing it. And what you're doing. And when you did it. And what you did last week. And where you were when you did it. And you can leave your cell phone at home. And he still knows. Because he's the real all-seeing eye. And he's taking note of everything you do. And every reason you do it. Good or bad. Right or wrong. Wise or foolish. Live your life accordingly. The conclusion of the whole matter is fear God. It's obvious. Follow the Lord. Do what he wants you to do. Through Jesus Christ, you can have salvation. Through Jesus Christ, you can have what money can't buy. And that's an eternal home in heaven. If you haven't found that yet, if you don't know that peace yet, we want to offer that to you right now. We can't do it of our own power, but by the glory of Christ and His sacrifice and in His name, we can offer that to you. If you'll submit to His will, you can enjoy the blessings of salvation that only He can supply. We'd love to help you in that. Or if you're a Christian, you need the church to pray for you, to assist you. We'd like to help you in either way. If you'll please come, have a seat on the front pew while we stand and sing.